3, and if you're capable, stand as we read God's text. We're going to be working at Mark chapter 3, 20 through 35. We'll see how far we get this morning, but what an amazing text this is, uh, and I know we will um, we want to magnify our Lord as we study this. John, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 3, verse 20, and he, that's Jesus, came home. And the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. And when his people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And he cast out the demons by the ruler of demons. And he called them to himself and began to speak in parables How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan rises up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he is finished. But no one can come into the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers arrived And standing outside, they sent word to him and called to him. And the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brother are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brother? And looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, it is he is my my brother, my sister, and my mother. You may be seated. Lord Jesus, you are such the master. It is such a privilege to study your words and to learn from them word by word, verse by verse. It's such a privilege to learn of your compassion you had on people. How you would push through with your goals, with what the Father sent you to do when so many opposed you. And Lord Jesus, we're the product of that. Because you were faithful and you did not become deterred to what you were sent to do, we sit here this morning as believers in you. Our sins have been washed away by your finished work on the cross because you were undeterred. And so, Lord, we thank you. And, Lord, we thank you that your word defines who true believers are. It helps us understand who the church really is. Helps us understand that you have have changed lives. You have made new lives. And behold, all things have become new. And so there is a response to your love. A response to your propitiation. And so Lord, thank you for helping us see that in our lives. And we ask that your word would be alive to us today. 
It would be that sharp two-edged sword that goes in and carves out the things that shouldn't be there and leaves us filleted before you. Lord, we thank you for this gathering in each and every soul that sits here. We thank you that you put it in their hearts to be here this morning. Lord, may this time be profitable for your glory. Our hearts do go out for the Knight family, Lord, as they've lost wife, mother, grandmother. We pray that you would comfort them, cause them to run and cling to your son through these times. We think of others. We pray for our dear brother Sam Race. May you heal him up and give him strength, Lord, again. For others who are suffering and not able to be here, you would encourage them through your church, particularly through your word and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for missionaries around the world. Lord, give them boldness where they're at to proclaim this gospel in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, Lord. Give them favor where they're at. Lord, now here as we preach your word, may it bring blessing and glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. And title of the sermon, Messiah or Madman, <laughs> he has to be one or the other when you get looking at this text, and there are plenty who think he is the other. When you look at both here in the scriptures and even in life today, we find two groups. They either see Jesus as Lord, Master, the word is kurios in the Greek, meaning he's owner of all things. Or he's crazy. Or he's, or he's just this good person that kind of lost his way. That's very clear in here. And when you look at this, you'll see first there's a family here that he lived perfectly in front of, but did not understand. They did not understand who they had in their family. And then there's this second group of religious leaders who are on this uh, group that keeps opposing Christ. They, of all people, should have known who he was according to understanding the word of God that proclaimed his coming all the way from Genesis 3. And yet, yet, both groups, family members and religious people, are blind to Jesus. I think that's still true today. I think that happens all the time. I think people are raised often in the, quote, faith. Uh, They've been around it all their lives. They know the stories, and yet they don't bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's others who have that religious uh, uh, appearance to themselves. And there's a lack of bending the knee to the need of Jesus Christ as Lord in your life. And we find still to this day people who see Jesus as Messiah and Lord are those who just dismiss him. Well, I want to look at just three thoughts today. The misunderstood Messiah. A Messiah who is falsely accused and falsely characterized to be with Satan. And then we want to look at the family traits of those who follow the Messiah. Number one, the misunderstood Messiah. It's hard to imagine people would think Jesus was crazy. We love him. Well, we, we would... Leave all to follow him, I hope. I hope that would be the case for many, if not all of us in here. We would follow him wherever he would ask us to go. And it was true, most of his ministry was this way. Luke chapter 19 verse 48 says that they actually hung on every word that he spoke, these massive groups. He had depth and clarity with 
perfect oration. He never stumbled and probably never used the word um, if that's a word. He was amazing to hear and to listen to. But despite all of that, there was those that should have known who he was but were blinded uh, to him. Look at verse 20 with me. He, Jesus, came home. And the crowds gathered again. You can see this in your mind's eye, don't you? To such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Jesus returns to home base Capernaum. This is where it all started. This is where he called his disciples. This is where he first began to preach and teach. And he came to a house, and it's probably referring to Peter and Andrew's house, probably maybe even where he healed Peter's mother-in-law here. But the Bible says the crowds gathered again. They gathered again. You could see this. The Savior has come back to this home base. And, and, and here comes the masses. It's like they drop everything they're doing to get to him. And, and if you think about this, this is probably rare in the ancient world. The ancient world, you didn't have refrigeration. You didn't have you know, large pantries that you could put everything in and keep them forever and Tupperware and all that stuff. Everybody worked to gain food for that day. That was what you did. And yet, they dropped everything to go see Jesus. They had to be careful. Rome would take notice of this. Anytime great groups would gather, that would bring the attention of Rome. They'd want to know if there was riots or there was some ruler trying to raise up. This brought problems. There's throngs and throngs of people drawn to the Lord Jesus. And they're drawn to this supernatural power that he has. He speaks with amazing authority. He shows compassion to those that have been rejected by society. He's drawing people to himself in a supernatural way. There's religious leaders mixed among the followers. There's logistic challenges with these crowds, these narrow streets of Capernaum. And they've already said, we're going to get him. But here he is again, back in the streets of Capernaum. He often took his... Followers, as we noted, to open spaces. He feeds the hungry there. He speaks out of boats because he's so packed in. People try to get to him. They tear roofs apart trying to lower paralytics to him. All this he does, and he still has open hostility. Open hostility. Jesus' popularity didn't decrease They kept coming. He was so popular. Notice in the text in verse 20 there that it says that they, him and his disciples, could not even eat a meal. Can you imagine that? I mean, I get phone calls and, you know, give me that eye like, you're going to take that now? (laughs) No, dear. Um, (laughs) Let's eat. But this this is beyond what we understand. They can't even eat a meal together. Jesus' presence was so popular that it was difficult for him and his disciples just to perform basic functions. <laughs> Wardrobe changes or whatever else would go with so far. And now their return, you can see this evidential return as they come back. They're tired. I mean, anybody been back from a long trip and you come home and there's a bunch of people in your house? If you have kids, <laughs> sometimes that happens. You know, we just drove from New York and these people are at our house already. We need to relax. There's none of that going on in Jesus' life. There was no time for that. 
There was no time for relax. And Mark chapter 6, verse 31 shows that this is not the only time this happened. He said to them, come away, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, by yourself to a secluded place and rest. And Mark adds this, for there were many people coming and going that they did not even have time to eat. So this isn't the first time this happens. There's throngs following our Savior. Mark does such a good job as I study this book to picture the ceaseless energy and the ceaseless activity of the servant Lord Jesus Christ. He is constantly among the people. He's constantly serving them. He is relentless in his care for this flock. And the relentless crowds form such a burden on him. And yet he continues to take it. Verse 21, look at that with me. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. So verse 21 begins to introduce us to his family. The term there for his own people um, is the word, we get the word um, kinsman from it, or, or relative, or immediate family of that. And it's most likely denoting his mother and his brother's That we'll reference back again in verse 31. We'll come back to this scene. Clearly, a report of this chaotic scene had made it to the family, had reached to them. And they said, look, let's go and let's take custody of him. Literally, let's grab him, let's seize him, and let's get him out of this mess. Now, they had seen this happen before. Look with me at Luke chapter 4, just briefly. Do you remember when Jesus comes to his hometown, Nazareth. That's where he was raised. And he, verse 14 of chapter 4, he comes into the synagogue there and he begins to teach. And they hand him the book of Isaiah. And again, he opens this up and he he proclaims this great messianic taxes about him. But then after he's done with that, he gives the book back to the attendant and he begins to rebuke them of their hard hearts. (laughs) And he reminds them of people who were not Jews, who were not Hebrews, who obeyed God and, and uh, were blessed by God. Well, that ticked them off. Do you remember what happens? Pick up with me in verse 28. And it said, all the people of the synagogue were filled with rage at hearing these things. This is after he rebukes them of their lack of faith. And they got up and drove him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down off the cliff. This is his hometown, folks. And I don't know if you've ever seen this picture at Nazareth. There is a cliff there. It's a straight drop off. You would never survive it if they chucked you off of it. You can read the rest of the text. He slips out amongst them. They never see him because he's God. So here's mom and brothers, dad, Joseph, probably has passed away, him being older than Mary at this time is not with them. And so his family has watched this. They've heard Jesus' sharp rebukes to his hometown and neighbors before. They've also seen how the people of Nazareth sought to kill him. And apparently they leave Nazareth, they come down to Capernaum because they need to take control and restrain Jesus. Because he doesn't know what he's doing. But clearly their deep concern lacked understanding of who he was and what he was doing. They said, for they they were saying he has lost his senses. (laughs) We know, I'll show you here in a little bit here, that they come to know Christ, especially um, his brothers. And it's recorded in the book of Acts. 
But can you imagine the stories around the family table later about the things they did there? Do you remember that time we went down to Capernaum to tell the king of kings he lost his mind? <laughs> I hope they had a good laugh at that after salvation. Because we read this and we go, oh, they don't understand. The family feels that he's acting unrational. And that would be it for people, right? This is, this is crazy. If you had a son or daughter caught in such popularity where they couldn't even eat a meal, could not attend to their own personal needs, you would probably try to go and get them out of them as well. But they did not know who they were dealing with. They did not know that Jesus was the shepherd of shepherds. He loved souls and he cared for people. He was constantly showing his authority and power and compassion to show them that he was the only way, truth and life to the Father. And this was his goal. However, this must have been part of that spiritual blindness that laid on his family's eyes. And we remember, listen, Mary knew the promises. She, she was told by the angel of Luke 2 of who her son would become. But even a mother's love can be distorted in these difficult times. His brothers were blind because they were unbelievers. John chapter 7, verse 5. You can write this down, look it up later. But it says his brothers were unbelievers. They didn't believe in him. They didn't know who he was. Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Jesus' half-brothers are listed. We begin to understand these are men that were very valuable to the gospel later. Here they begin to question who Jesus is. They said, is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary? Right? Isn't this the brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? Are not these his sisters with us? And then they took offense at him. It's another situation that Mark records that happened. And doubtlessly Mary, and think about this, doubtlessly Mary and Joseph had told these half-brothers of their older brother of what his life was like. <laughs> well, he's perfect. <laughs> Your brother's never fouled up in his speech. He's impeccable in everything he does. He's, his scholarly abilities taught the scribes and Pharisees when he was 12. Well, maybe that alone, maybe that alone caused great animosity. Sinners realizing in, they're in the presence of God. You either bow or you reject. One of the two. And so, nevertheless, they, they thought in their humanity, and their blindness, he's lost his senses. <laughs> the word literally means is to lose your mind or to be beside yourself or even insane. And it seems that Jesus' family, after the experience of Nazareth of Luke 4, saying, we can't let this happen. We need to take things into our own control. But what's amazing is Jesus' brothers come to faith after the resurrection. Let me just read you this verse. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Just jot it down. It's an amazing thing. These, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, now listen to this, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. When I read that, my heart just warmed again. God loves to save families. <laughs> he doesn't always do that. There's probably many in this room that may, or at least some that say, I don't have anybody saved in my family. But he often enjoys and by his sovereign will draws entire, if not majority of families, uh, moms and dads and children to him. And I love this statement because it reminds us that God did save 
the family, many of the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, his brother James would become a leader in the church in Jerusalem. And James and his brother Jude would write epistles in, that, are, that are inspired by the Holy Spirit and are in our New Testament. But at this time, at this time they seemed not to understand anything that Jesus was doing or understood his desire. They only wanted to protect him. And so, as we leave this point... Is there anything more difficult than dealing with unbelieving family members? It's one of the hard things, isn't it? Those who reject our faith, those who want to live in sin and not repent, those are difficult things for us, aren't they? In fact, they often will bring us sleepless nights, will often hurt or, or, or even fall into sin ourselves as we butt heads with those who Reject the faith in Christ alone. And yet the Lord has put us in each of these families and in relationships as lights to the gospel. And that's what Jesus was. And he's a great example. You go, well, he's God. But he sets an example that we too can be lights in a dark world. And so let me encourage you as we leave this point, brothers and sisters, with your unsaved family members or those caught in sin, be consistent. Do not... Do not join in sin, but be consistent. Live as children of the king. Live as lights of the gospel before them. They may get even more mad. (laughs) That happens. But in the end, when the Lord calls you home, you can say, Lord, by your grace, I was able to live a life in front of them. And you can give him glory for those things. Second thought, the the Messiah is falsely categorized with Satan. Look at with me back to the scriptures um, because we kind of come back to this scene here with Jesus and, and here he encountering this great opposition and these new slanderous charges begin to happen before he goes on to deal with his family. Turn with me just real quickly. Keep your finger here because there's a part of Mark doesn't record that happens here that spurs this whole debate over this relationship with Satan that they're trying to say he's in. Look at Matthew chapter um, 12 with me, verse 22. I want to show you this text because um, Mark didn't, didn't, by the inspiration of Scripture, did not put this part in there, but this definitely got them going. Mark chapter 12, verse 22. This is the same account here. Then a demon-possessed man, this is why he's in, the, he's, in, he's in his house, he can't even eat, the crowds are around him, um, the scribes are showing up, the family's on the way to try to get him out of this situation. All this is going, Matthew gives us a little further understanding, he says, then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Man, I read that this week ago. That's a tough gig. <laughs> I'm demon-possessed, I can't see or hear. This is the ruthlessness of Satan. (laughs) Look who they bring in front of him, this man, and he's brought to Jesus. And he healed him. The passage just says he heals him. Done. So that the mute man spoke and saw. So this demon is cast out. This man who's never heard hears now. This man who never saw now sees. All the crowds were amazed. And they were saying, this man uh, man cannot be the son of David. And it's a question mark. Can he? There's finally some saying that this could be the Messiah. Who could do this but God? But the Pharisees, when they heard this, and now we pick up our story as you drop back to Mark, they have another term for him. 
Look at verse 22, back in Mark chapter 3. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. So now these scribes show up. We've had dealings with the Pharisees. He'll later have a run-in with the Sadducees. Now he's got another wave of the religious leaders who have come. And, and, and clearly this indicates the prestige of a scribal influence. They're coming down. These are the guys. These are the guys that write their traditions and hold everybody to things. And they have one aim. they got one target. Neutralize Jesus. Pharisees doubtlessly have said, look, we've got a problem This guy's drawing everybody to him. We're losing our authority. He's he's showing uh, that our traditions are not in the Bible. Uh, He's he's saying we're self-righteous. That's why they're here. They're here to gain control again. Notice he says saying here. It's interesting. Uh, I just looked up this, this imperfect tense here. It means they're just repeating it over and over. They're trying to get some truth out, saying something over and over and over. Because if you say something long enough and loud enough, people start believing it. And this is what their goal. And they made two main charges. Notice here, Mark sums up these charges. First, that his person, that's what they're going to go after, his personage of who he is. And then second, they're going to go after his work. Now notice, look at the verse with me. The scribes are saying he is possessed by Beelzebub. So they're after his person, who he is. And then the second one, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. So now they're going to try to attack the things he's doing. Because they can't explain it. They can't say he's not doing this. Now they're going to go after his works to try to discredit him. But let's look at the first charge. They claim that he was possessed by Beelzebub. Now, in essence, they're saying that Jesus is Beelzebul's agent. And Jesus had been drawing all these people to himself. He's denouncing their hypocritical system, their man-made traditions and self-righteous works. And they're out to say, this guy is not of God. Now, the name Beelzebul is reference to a god of the Philistines. They called him Baal-sabul, Beelzebul. Right, tied to the worship of Baal, means uh, Baal means ruler or prince, and and it's not hard to go back and see some of this. We don't have time to run there, but first, first Samuel chapter five and six, you'll see where uh, the the city of Ekron, um, which was the kind of the capital city of the Philistines, this was their god. Uh, great story there. You remember they take the ark into that, and as soon as they take the ark into that place, all kinds of problems start happening. And it just shows that their God was just puny God. <laughs> it wasn't a God at all. And then we get to Ahaz's son, and he falls through some lattice work, and he says, oh, hey, go, go see uh, Beelzebul and see if I'm going to recover them. And Elijah catches the man that's going and says, he's going to die because he did not seek the God of Israel. So this is who they, they are uh, aligning him with. And so the Israelites in the Old Testament mockingly called Beelzebul, Baal-zebub. <laughs> and what it meant was, Lord of Flies, in fact, there's even a little farther, I'll give you the clean version, Lord of the Dung Heap. And they would mock the Philistines. That's what they would call their God. And so, by the first century, Beelzebul was a name for Satan. 
And the religious leaders intended to associate that name with Jesus Christ. You see right where they're going with this, aren't they? It's a massive political scheme to slander their opponent. People are still doing that today, aren't they? <laughs> Nothing seems to change, right? But this is Jesus. This is the Lord of creation. And this isn't the first time they've tried this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 25 of Something that was preceding, Jesus actually foretells this is going to happen. He says, is it enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, a slave like his master? And also this, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? You want to hang to Jesus Christ? You want to be a follower of me? They're going to do worse to you than they've done to me. That was Jesus' warning to his followers. And that's exactly what happened. But as we'll see, the religious leaders were the ones belonging to the prince of darkness. Now, the name Beelzebul probably meant um, the Lord of dwelling, is the idea of the original uh, God of the Philistines. And that dwelling, as we'll know, is of evil spirits. And this will agree with verse 21 when we get to the strong man's house. But in essence, the scribes refuse to see Jesus as the Son of God, and they're charging him. Here's their charge. They're labeling him as Satan's main agent. It was a wicked attack against his personage. The sinless Son of God, one who is uh, impervious to sin, he's impeccable in his character and nature, they are equating as Satan's main agent. That's their goal. Now, secondly, they go after his works. He cast out demons by the rulers of demons. They have to do something with Jesus. He's doing things people have never seen before. I mean, this whole scene that we see in Matthew tied to here, a demonic man, blind and mute, is instantly healed. You've got to do something with that. You've got to discredit his work some way. And so this is what they do. Their goal is to discredit him by attributing all that he does to Satan. Notice they say, here in verse, into verse 22, he cast out demons by the ruler of the demons. So they are saying that he is under the submission of Satan. And he has, by the means here, by the means of his power. So Jesus is not acting on his own power or being the son of God or through the Holy Spirit's power to do all that he was doing. He's gaining his power from Satan's. That's their attack. Remember, you have people who are deathly afraid of these leaders because if you disagree with them, you're kicked out of the synagogue. And if you believe their traditions and you can't go to synagogue, you don't go to heaven. It is the biggest fear-mongering trick they can pull out. And they are there to destroy the authority of Jesus. So, to sum that up, the scribes are attempting to convey that Jesus has a close union with Satan. In the explanation of his power and authority, Satan empowers him. Verse 23. Let's see what Jesus does. And he, Jesus, calls them to himself and begins speaking in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? I love what Jesus does. He doesn't really even acknowledge the scribes, right? Jesus just turns to the crowd and says, hey, can I talk to you? <laughs> he, just, just, he really just rejected them completely. He turns to the crowd and says, let me talk to you. He turns to them. He turns away, puts his back to these foolish religious leaders. Because Matthew 12, 25 says he knows their thoughts. 
and he counteracts their slander and he answers the scribes' direct charges, but he does it to the crowd through a parable. This is the first use of parables we see. Next, in chapter 4, we'll start to see him begin to use parables more and more. But parables is this picturesque, proverb-like way of expressing truth while hiding it from people who don't believe. And so here he goes. First, Jesus counters their question with a question, right? How can Satan cast out Satan? This counter question is, is only recorded in Mark. It's amazing. Only Mark writes this down. Well, how, what, what's Satan casting out Satan? Is that what you're saying? Is that what they're putting up? It didn't take long for just a rudimentary intermediate guy to be sitting there going, yeah, that doesn't really make sense. So he, he asked a question to get people to think here. And Jesus is making this open assertion that the scribes are saying he is in union with Satan and his goal is to show the absurdity of their statement. In fact, it's almost suicidal that Satan's casting out him on his own self. Now, Jesus will show that no rational, intelligent being would even think this way. You have to be stupid to think that you're going to cast out his own person out of his own, own house. Now, he gives two illustrations, uh, 24 and 25. Look what he does. 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. So here he gives two illustrations to show the absurdity of these charges. Both are hypothetical examples in a parable form, but suggesting these are unreal possibilities. And Jesus knows the self-destructive nature of their assumptions. So he goes, first of all, let's look at the kingdom. Now this is complex. So he uses a complex statement of a kingdom. Think about all that's in a kingdom. I mean, you have rulers and servants and taxpayers and tax collectors and I mean, workers. You have all of this. So he uses this monster complex thing of a kingdom and he says, you're going to divide that? You divide that and you think it'll stand? And if that wasn't good enough, in verse 25 he goes a little farther. He goes to a very intimate setting and he speaks of a house divided. And... and Brothers and sisters, this is not hard for us in this age to understand what he's doing. You divide a house, do you think it's going to last? We see this in divorce. We see this when, when moms and dads are each other and then they're trying to win kids over and, and it just becomes an absolute sinful disaster. And, and, and in the end, the house is gone. The, the name is gone. The, the relationship's gone. Everything is destroyed. And Jesus is showing the absurdity of pitting inside each other, whether it's a kingdom, Satan's entire kingdoms, or even down to intimate setting, that, that he, they would divide themselves against each other because that would, that would never happen. And if it does happen, there's nothing but destruction. And that's what Jesus comes to. Notice verse 26. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but he is finished. He, he, he uses two past tense verses. If Satan has, has risen up against himself and is divided, like if this happened, he cannot stand. Present tense. So if Satan sends me out as his agent to destroy what he wants to do, how would the house stand? It would collapse. It would be done. In fact, he says, present tense, it cannot stand. It's done, finished. 
There's an assumption that Satan could not stand as head of his kingdom if he did this. What a foolish comment these scribes had made. Now look with me at verse 27. And this is where things get interesting. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property until he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder the house. Jesus uses a strong adversive conjunction here. He says, but, look at that, the beginning of that. Hold on, let me show you the reality of things. This is a false charge. This has, this has no truth to it. This is absurd. But let me tell you what the truth is. Let me bring your, this false statement into the light of the truth. And Jesus uses this analogy of picturing Satan as this powerful thug who has filled his house with splendor. You can see that in the verse, can't you? The strong man is Satan. His house is the kingdoms of this world with the demons as members of his household doing his work. Notice he talks about his property, or your Bible might say goods, and his, and his property. He has goods and property within them. Those refer to the human victims that Satan has gathered. This is who he holds. Those belong to him. Now, now what Jesus is doing here is he's showing that there's one who is stronger than Satan that can deliver them from his grasp. There's one who is stronger. You first must bind the strong man. In other words, when Jesus cast out demons, he's done exactly this. He's proven he's stronger than Satan. Because Satan's own members of his household bow to him and say, you're the Holy Son of God. <laughs> he's proving what he does is because he has authority over Satan. He is not the agent of Satan. He has authority over him. And every time he cast out demons, every time he, he defeated the wicked uh, kingdoms of Satan's dominions, he proved he was the strong man, the stronger man that could beat Satan. What an amazing statement he makes here. And Jesus was establishing that he enters Satan's house, having overpowered him and bound him. And isn't that true what he did with us? Verse 27, right at the end he says, and he will plunder his house. A while back I was preaching on something here. And I used this term and someone came up and says, I've never thought of that. And I said something like this, Jesus comes across the enemy lines and he plunders the enemy. You belong to him. He came into the strong man's house and he took you out of it. And that's why he's stronger. And that's why that's such a foolish statement. I'm the strong man, Jesus says. I'm stronger than him. And I prove it every time I cast one of his demons out. I have authority. I cannot be stopped. And he reminds us that he plunders Jesus had, let's think about it. Jesus had victory over Satan in the wilderness. His demons now bow before him in submission. And so Christ uses a future tense verb here that, that we believe he's probably pointing to something even in the future here. He says, look, I, I, will, I will plunder the house, right? He's plundering it already. He's showing right now, look, your demons have nothing. <laughs> you can bring your worst case Bring the guy with the legions and let me turn him into a missionary. Isn't that what he did in the Gardena tombs? You bring your vest and let me see what I do with him. Because I'm talking about what I'm going to do in the future. And that's exactly what he does. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me real quick. 
Hebrews 2, verse 4, 14, excuse me. Therefore, since the children, that's you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same. So Jesus becomes flesh and blood because he's got to save us. He's got to get us. He's got to plunder the house. So the way he plunders the house is he adds flesh to him, comes to this world, lives a sinless, perfect life, and dies on our behalf. So that's what that verse means. Now look at the rest of it. That through death he might plunder, render powerless him who has power over death, that is the devil. What a verse. (laughs) I'm going to plunder him. You're trying to make me out to be an agent with him? I'm going to destroy him. And he's not done, and it's future tense, and we would even say this statement might even go beyond the cross, which is amazing to us that he defeated Satan, took away the authority of death that he has on us, and he even looks forward and says there's a day in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, I'm going to bind him for a thousand years. And then there's another day coming where I'm going to toss him into the lake of fire, and he will be eternally destroyed forever because he's not a strong man compared to me. That's our Lord. That's the Jesus we serve. He can take on anything. And yet these wicked men pit him against these people with absurdity charges. And Jesus is now putting them in a very awkward place. Look at verse 28. He turns to warning. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Ooh, he's not changing subjects, folks. He's still on target because he's going to prove that their sins that they're committing are unforgivable. But he's first going to show that he has the power to forgive. And so he tells them, look, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven, the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, right? Anybody in this room, and be honest, have you ever blasphemed God in some way? Every one of us thank you for that hand back there. Have in some way. In some way, you robbed God of glory. You were mad at him because something happened. You blasphemed him in some way. Right here, this verse says that he will forgive that sin. He will forgive that sin. These charges, they reveal the inner moral state of these religious leaders. But now he's turning, remember, he's turned to these people. And he begins to speak out of his own lips. And he begins to make great statements of great importance. And he marks that he alone has authority to forgive sins. And the Jews of that day, when he begins to say truly, uh, maybe the old, uh, old King James would have said verily, verily, truly, truly, he is now speaking, and they would have heard it as the, author- the same authority as the Old Testament was written in. You can see him turn to this. He's starting to preach now. He's starting to teach. He has discredited their claims, and now he begins to teach, and he says all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. This is a magnificent statement of the scope of God's forgiveness. He forgives us of all of our sins. It is not a statement of universal forgiveness. It isn't just wiping out everybody's sin and, oh, we're just going to open the gates and let everybody in. But it's a declaration of all kinds of different sins he will forgive. And he says, look, I'm forgiving the sins of sons of men. This is referring to human beings. Now, man's sins here, this is how we would label them. That means their acts of rejection or disobedience 
that have created the barrier between us and God, right? That first act was Adam and Eve. They believed Satan's lie over God's truth. They rejected God. That put a barrier between God and men. You and I did the exact same thing. We did not come out of the womb believing in God. In fact, we were gone astray when we were born. We we're, were conceived in sin. I mean, everything about it teaches depravity. Everything the Bible teaches teaches that we are deprived. We do not have a relationship with God, so there's a barrier between us. And so this is what he's speaking of. He's going to forgive men. He's going to forgive people and break down that barrier between God and men. And then he says at the end of 28, whatever blasphemes they utter. Now, blaspheme is a, a, a specific class of sin, right? It means to speak reproach against another. Ooh. Anybody ever done that? Or to utter malice or slandering things towards someone else. But when blasphemy is directed towards God, it denotes hostility towards God's honor and power. But notice in the text, God is willing to forgive blasphemies against himself. That's an amazing statement. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 29 is what he's after. Look with me. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. We've got to figure out what that means. Because never being forgiven means you're going to hell. You can't walk enough aisles, say enough prayers ever to get past this one. And so the Lord says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of the internal sin. It's interesting, right away he, he stresses who the Spirit is. Both the Spirit and Holy both have articles in front of them. You know he's speaking of unique Godhead, the, pers- the Spirit of the person of God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. He's after that triune God that they know was spoke of. He being the Messiah, the Son of God, the Spirit of God who indwells him and ministers through him. In fact, every point in Jesus' ministry was marked by the work of the Spirit. His birth is marked by the Spirit. His baptism, his temptation, his ministries, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, all under the operation of the Holy Spirit. Every Every moment, everything he did was controlled by the Holy Spirit. He was always walking in perfect obedience with his Father, always under the full control of the Spirit. And those who had seen the overwhelming evidences of the Spirit of God in the power of Jesus' ministry, but remained completely unwilling to accept the Messiah, were going to blaspheme the Spirit. And that's what he's after here. And they chose instead to attribute, listen to this, the spirit of the empowering work of the Holy Spirit of God to the work of Satan. Instead of giving credit to the Spirit of God, they gave credit to Satan. You rob the Holy Spirit of that, of his saving work, his authority to point out Jesus Christ to our lives and to people around the world in this day and in day to come, you will blaspheme against the Spirit. And in turn, you will find yourself outside of the grace of God. And though they had witnessed the gospel firsthand in Jesus' preaching, in his compassion to the sick, his dominion over the demons, his ability to forgive, 
in the face of every possible evidence of the Spirit's work through Jesus, they rebelliously refused to believe and they hardened their hearts against the Messiah. And that's what Jesus is speaking of. He's speaking of those who reject Jesus Christ because that's the Spirit's work. And it is the Spirit's office to convict people of sin, to reveal the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when sinners deliberately dishonor the Spirit, they misrepresent His nature, they misrepresent His work, they commit sins which close the door against forgiveness. In other words, there is no forgiveness of sin because there is no attitude for it. You've rejected the Spirit's work. In fact, that's what Jesus said. There's no forgiveness, but is guilty to the eternal sin. There's no forgiveness of sin because there is a final conclusion that Jesus is not the Son of God. He is not the only way, truth, and life to get to the Father. And there's a rejection. That's the Spirit's work. And when you say that Jesus is not Lord, he is not God, he is not the one who can bring me to the Father, you blaspheme the Spirit. And so those who reject the gospel today blaspheme the Spirit's work just as they blaspheme the work of Jesus Christ when he was on the earth. That's what he's speaking about. There is no other unpardonable sin that churches have laid down about suicide or everything else. This is the rejection of Jesus Christ as God. You reject him, you're rejected for eternity. And you go, man, that's harsh, God. Do you want to try to come some other way? Do you want to somehow balance the scales of your life out and hope you're done enough? God is actually being very gracious here. I've given you one way, not ten ways, not a hundred ways, not all these things. I've given you one way to come to me. It's through Jesus Christ. And if you reject that, you reject my spirit's work. And thus, I reject you. This is an amazing charge. Jesus is setting the record straight. And brothers and sisters, this is what the Hebrew writers tried to speak about. Hebrews chapter 2. You don't have to just listen to this. We don't have time to go there. But verse 3 and 4. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? After it was at first spoken from the Lord. It was confirmed to, those, to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles now listen to this, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Later, he comes down to Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, now listen to this, and tasted the heavenly gift, and have been partakers of the Holy Spirit. People stumble over this verse all the time. Let me give you an explanation before I read the last verse. Did not the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes taste the work of the Spirit of God? They were standing there when he cast out demons. Oh, brothers and sisters, they tasted the Spirit's work, but they did not swallow they did not believe. And so the verse goes on to say, and have tasted the good word of God and the power of age to come, and they have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That's what they're talking about. You reject the Spirit's work, there is no salvation because the Spirit's work is to identify Jesus Christ to you. That's who does it. 
You, you thought you walked an aisle, said a prayer, granny, you know, helped you come to Christ. Thank the Lord for granny. It was the Spirit of God. Period. Who brought you to Christ. That's what he does. That's why he's not the missing member of the Trinity in so many churches because we don't talk about him. He's the one who reveals Jesus. And if you reject him, you blaspheme him, and there is no forgiveness because there's no Jesus because the Spirit brings Jesus. Is that true? Do you see that, brothers and sisters? How important this is. They labeled him with such a massive charge. And he turns around and says, this is foolish. Satan himself wouldn't divide his home. Let me tell you what you've just done to yourself. You've blasphemed the Spirit of God. I'm out of time. We've got to do communion because I love the Lord's table. But we'll get to the next, next time we'll get to the last passage because all of a sudden the scene's going to drop back in and here's mom and brothers after this great lesson. Mom and brothers are there. And he's going to teach us. And, and Jesus himself is going to say, you want to know if you're in my family? I have the answer for that. We'll get to that next time. Father, thank you for a chance to be in your word. We are just captured by your son. Who could stand against such charges, such malice slander? The relentless attack. The relentless pressure from people to be healed and fed and needs and preaching that needed to be done and all of that. Jesus was that, that man. And everything he did, everything he did was guided by the Spirit of God. Acknowledged that who he was and the beauty of, of him and showing his authority, showing his power, showing his ability to forgive sins, actually leading him to the cross. And when men, men or women, boys or girls, reject that work, they reject the Spirit of God. They blaspheme Him. They actually slander His work, Lord. Oh, Father, we don't want to be a part of that. <laughs> and we thank You that You've shown us Your Son. And we acknowledge that it was the Spirit's work in our life that opened our eyes, made us new creations. He lifted the veil and we saw Jesus for who He was. And so we thank You for the work of the Spirit in our lives, Lord. And so, Father, we would pray that for our family members, our worst enemies, for those that are outside the faith, Lord. We would pray that your spirit would lift the veil on them, Lord. And they would see the great need for Jesus. And they would receive forgiveness for every sin they've ever committed or ever will commit, just as we have. So, Lord, please hear this prayer, Lord. We desire for your spirit to have freedom here, Lord. The gospel will have no strings attached to it. There will be no stumbling blocks to it, Lord. But pure preaching of a spirit-filled gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. May that be done for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.